starting this week. So, for those of you who haven't been with us, let me tell you that the book of Revelation is a, composed of a series of visions which the Apostle John, exiled to the island of Patmos, has. As he sits on the island, suddenly there appears before his eyes a vision, sort of a daydream, but it's a divine daydream or divine vision, where Christ appears to him and tells him to write letters to seven churches in the area of Asia Minor, which is uh, west eastern Turkey, or tur just Turkey, might as well say. So uh, he writes these letters, and these letters, dictated by Jesus, say to those churches, uh, be forewarned, persecution is going to come upon the church if you remain faithful. Uh, there are going to be opportunities for you to compromise your faith. These compromises usually would take place during meal times. Rome had a series of banquets that everyone in the empire had to attend. If you were like a carpenter, you had to attend the Carpenters Guild meeting every month. And those meetings included banquets. And portions of those banquets involved offering sacrifices to Caesar. And if you were a Christian and you attended one of those, you were expected to offer a sacrifice to Caesar. Jesus says, do not practice idolatry. If you do, you will be judged, be forewarned, be faithful to Christ no matter what, even if it costs you your life. And you can expect it to cost you your life or some sort of persecution. You may lose your job for not doing that. But whatever the situation is, remain faithful. And so the people, in a sense... In the vision, John sees the people responding. They say, well, Lord, how long are we going to have to go through this thing? When are you going to avenge our blood? What happens if we die for you? Uh, is that the end? Will Rome get what it deserves? Will it get its just fruits? And so Jesus, in the vision, writes back, yes, Rome will be avenged. And we saw that last week. We saw that the beast, the emperor, his religious prophet, uh, Satan himself and all the hordes that follow and bow their knee to, say, uh, to Caesar will indeed be cast into the lake of fire. They will get what is theirs. And we can say that everybody who bows the knee to any emperor and any emperor who's a tyrant and all those who follow and do not recognize Christ as Lord will be one day cast into the lake of fire. Yes, they may get away with it in this lifetime, but in the end they will be judged. And what about us? the people say. Will we ever get our reward if we remain faithful to the end? And Jesus says, yes, you will. And in the vision, he gives John a new, a, a new uh, scene in the vision. So in chapter 21 and verse 1, we read this. Now, after everything was judged, all the evil was judged and put, and put to an end. Now, I saw, see that's a new vision, new scene in the vision, I saw a new heaven, meaning a new sky, a new sky with no longer has a sun. It's a strange new sky. I saw a new heaven and a new earth. So the old heaven, the old sky, the sun, the moon, the stars, everything that we know, and the old earth has passed away. All evil throughout the ages has been judged. This world as we know it passes away. And he sees a new heaven and a new earth. A universe that is 
totally reconfigured. And the chaos and the evil no longer exist. He says this in verse 1, Because I saw a new heaven and a new earth, because the first heaven, the first sky, and the first earth had passed away. That phrase, passed away, means has died out, no longer exists. I'm sorry that your loved one passed away, we say. So this is a is being replaced. The old heaven and the old earth is being replaced by a new heaven and a new earth. So we see heaven, earth, sky as we know them today. What we see when we walk outside today, everything that we see, one day is going to be gone and it's going to be replaced. Those terms are used earlier, just a few verses earlier in chapter 20. For example, chapter 20 verse 11, he says, Then I saw a great white throne and him who sat on it, whose face Earth and heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. He talks about the sea in verse 13. So those things that we are used to in our life will one day be gone, and it will be replaced. Now, the Apostle Paul, as well as John himself, deals with this. He says, the whole creation as we know it groans. Our creation groans because it's been touched by sin and it's corrupt. Everything that man has touched since sin has entered into the world has been corrupt. So this whole universe is groaning, and it's groaning for the day when it too will be saved. That it too will experience deliverance. And this earth, as we know, is going to be cleansed, or it's going to pass away, and there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth. That's what's happening in this verse. Now, it's very interesting to me that... If you keep going in verse 21, it says, Also, there was no more sea. Now, there's been all kinds of explanations. This is what he sees in the vision. In his vision, he, does, he sees the sea just disappears. Okay. Uh, is that how it's going to happen in real life? I don't know, but in the vision, sea is going to disappear. And people have tried to figure out, well, what does the sea mean? Well, the sea represents the nations of the Gentiles. The sea represents blah, 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 you know. Uh, if you just think about John, he's on the island of Patmos. He's in exile. And for him, the sea is what separates him from everybody else. For him, the sea is what keeps him apart from the people he loves. And uh, maybe he's just simply saying that uh, this sea that he's looking out upon uh, and this separation from people that he loves is going to come to an end. We don't know. These are the things. When someone sees a vision, they're seeing symbols, and they're having to interpret those symbols, and we're having to interpret those symbols, and it's not an easy thing. So then he has scene number two. Look at verse two. Then I, John, saw the holy city. New Jerusalem. After everything passes away, he sees a holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. The remainder of this book will now focus on this new Jerusalem. So the rest of chapter 21 and the entirety of chapter 22 will deal with the new Jerusalem. Now I want to examine this a little bit, and we're only going to cover the first eight verses today, but I want you to notice several things about this city. I want you to know its name. Notice its name there in verse 2. It's called New Jerusalem. New Jerusalem. Why is it called New Jerusalem? Because the 
old Jerusalem is gone. That's exactly right. Because the old Jerusalem, which was on earth, part of the old creation, has passed away. Okay? And now God's making everything new. Okay? Notice its nature in verse 2. It's a city, and it's described as a holy city, in contrast to the old city that was unholy. The earthly Jerusalem in John's day was not a holy place. Now there was a temple there, and the Jews thought it was holy. But that's not how Christ evaluates Jerusalem. In fact, just go back a few chapters to chapter 11, and look how the old Jerusalem is described in Revelation chapter 11. You've forgotten this. You saw it, but you forgot it. Watch this. It's talking about people who have been faithful to Christ. In verse 8 it says this, And their bodies, their dead bodies, will lie in the street of the great city. Now watch. Their bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which spiritually is called Sodom and Egypt. What city is he talking about? Look, where our Lord was what? Crucified. You want to know what Jerusalem was like? He characterized it as Sodom. That wasn't a nice place, was it? If I could get to say one word, what was Sodom like? Is it unholy? Egypt. Remember Egypt that oppressed people? The Jews? Was that a nice place? No. So what we have in chapter 21 is we have the old city of Jerusalem being replaced by a new city, and he describes it as a holy city. Now not only is it a holy city, notice it's a heavenly city. Notice what it says in verse 2. The new Jerusalem coming out of heaven from God. <clears throat> now, when John writes this book, and we assume that he writes it somewhere around 90 or 95 AD, where's the old city of Jerusalem? What's happened to that city? Anybody know? It's been wiped out. Rome destroyed that city in 70 AD. The Jews decided to rebel against Rome in 66. You know what Rome did? Just came in and stumped them just like that. And that Jewish war, which lasted for four years, was the worst thing that could ever happen to the city of Jerusalem because the Romans came in and dismantled the temple. Remember when Jesus said, see this temple? Not one stone will be standing. Remember when he said that to his disciples? Well, that's what happened in 70 AD. And then the few of the remnant of Jews had run up to Masada. Remember that big area? And they end up committing suicide up there. This is, this is what the old city was like. Okay? And it's described as an unholy city. This is a holy city. And because it's a holy city, it originates with God. And he sees in the vision, literally, a city just descending. It's coming down out of heaven. And it's coming down out of heaven, and it's going to land on earth. Paul in Galatians calls this the Jerusalem that's from above. And he says our citizenship is in that Jerusalem up there. He says there's a Jerusalem where God lives, a city where God lives. And uh, he says God has our names registered in that book of life up there, that registry up there. That's where our citizenship is. 
And now John sees this new Jerusalem coming down to earth. Now, a lot of people are so enamored with the Middle East, they got their eyes fixed on what? Jerusalem. Right now. The latest version of Jerusalem. It was destroyed, wasn't it? But United Nations said, well, the Jews are going to have a homeland. We're going to start, you can have Jerusalem, earthly Jerusalem. And all of our focus is on earthly Jerusalem when our focus, John's focus at least, is on a new Jerusalem. The hope of the world is not that Jerusalem. The hope of the world is that Jerusalem. So you better watch where your eyes are, what your focus is, and how you interpret Scripture. Because this is the Jerusalem that counts. It's the heavenly Jerusalem. Now, I want to show you something. I want you to go back to Hebrews 11, because I want to show you what it says about the saints of old, where their hope was. Now watch this. Hebrews 11 is a pretty simple passage. And this is about Abraham. Now look what it says in Hebrews 11. You know, this is the faith chapter. And look at verse 10 about Abraham. For he waited for a city which has foundations whose builder and maker is God. Abraham never made it to the earthly Jerusalem. He passed through once, but he, he didn't really make it there. He didn't inherit that land. Verse 16 says, And now they desire a better, that is, a heavenly, a heavenly country or a heavenly city. Therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, and He has prepared a city for them. What kind of city does it say in verse 16? Heavenly. You see that? Heavenly city. Now look over chapter 13 of Hebrews. Now remember Hebrews is written to Hebrews. Written to Jews. And look what it says in Hebrews 13 and verse 14. For here we have no continuing city. But we seek the one to come. So, where would you put your hope? On the earthly Jerusalem? Or would you want to put your hope in this one who's going to come? Well, John, in his vision, sees a new Jerusalem that's coming. And that's what he says over there in Revelation. Look what he says in Revelation uh, 21 2. Then I, John, saw the holy city of the new Jerusalem coming. See? That's the one to come. It's coming down out of heaven from God. That's the promised city that we should be looking for. And then we see it's not only a promised city, we see it's a prepared city. Look what it says. Prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. You see that? Word as, that's a simile. It's telling us what the city's like. What is a city like? I'll tell you what it's like. It's beautiful. It's like something you've never seen before. It's a beautiful city. You've all been, and he likens it to a bride adorned for her husband. He, we've all been to weddings and we've watched the bride come down the aisle. You're not watching the father. 
And I can tell you one thing for sure, you're not watching the preacher. I'm the least watched person in a wedding. That's different than a funeral. At a funeral, people are listening to me. They're dealing with their own mortality. They're seeing death right in front of them, and I really have a captive audience. But in a wedding, people say, well, what, are you going to preach a sermon? Do it? Forget preaching a sermon. They just want to see this guy kiss the bride and get on with the party. You know? Well, this is going to be a party. The kingdom of God's a party. It's like a great wedding feast. And when the New Jerusalem comes down, it's going to be great. And he says it is beautiful. It's a beautiful city. And it's a descending city, which is so important. A descending city. Uh, you know, we want to go to heaven. That's our goal. That's not God's goal. So here's our goal. I want to go to heaven. Well, let me tell you something. God's goal is for heaven to come down to earth. You see that? This heavenly city, where is it coming? It's coming to earth. We want to go to heaven. God wants the city to come down to us. God has always been interested in earth. And then look what he says there in verse 3. He says, And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men. And he will dwell with them. Guess what? We always said, we want to go with God up to heaven. We want to dwell with him. What's God's goal? The New Jerusalem coming down to earth and he wants to dwell with us. See, not only is the New Jerusalem coming down to earth, guess what else is coming down to earth? God is coming down to earth. You see that? Look what it says. I heard this voice saying, The tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them. God comes down to earth. He, he will make his abode with them. That's what the word dwell means. So not only does the New Jerusalem descend, God descends. And he makes earth his home. And that's what we see that same thing again in verse 10. It says, He carried me away in the Spirit, the great mountain. He showed me the great city, the holy Jerusalem. Look what it was doing. Descending out of heaven from God. So, what we have is God's plan has always been to dwell on earth. Now, this is very important. If you don't get this, you're going to probably miss a lot of the meaning of Revelation. God has always wanted to dwell on earth with us. It's not that He wants... He does not... His goal is not for us to dwell with Him in heaven. If you get that, you'll get a lot. So, He creates Adam and Eve, and He creates them with wings, doesn't He? Isn't that right? Doesn't He make them angels? Does He create them to live in heaven? Oh, no, where does He create them to live? On earth. And He has a garden. And where is God? And He walks with man. Yeah, God is in the midst of the garden. So, he creates man on earth, and there he is in the midst of us. He dwells with Adam and Eve. Now, of course, they sin, and God puts them out of the garden. And then in the next major scene, we have the Jews, as a result of their sin, in 
in Egypt. They're in exile. They're crying out, Oh God! And they'd forgotten God, but He hadn't forgotten them. Oh God, help, help! And He comes and He helps. And He leads them in the Exodus. And He builds a, tells Moses to build a tabernacle. Why? A place so I can what? Dwell. I want to live amongst you. And so every time they would stop, they would set up the tabernacle and God's presence would come right down. And here was 12 tribes like this surrounding the tabernacle. And right in the middle was the tabernacle. And that's where God's presence was. He dwelt with people. And then David wants to build a, a temple and Solomon completes it. And then after the dedication of Solomon's temple, guess what happens? God's spirit comes right down and God dwells right there in the midst of these people. And then, of course, they continued to be bad folks. And they ended up in all kinds of captivity, one right after another, Assyrian, Babylon, Greece, Persia, Rome. You know. And so God says, well, I'm going to send a prophet, John the Baptist. And he's going to say, repent, the kingdom of God is what? At hand. And this is John, which Isaiah the prophet said, who goes into the wilderness and he cries out, prepare you the way for the Lord. The Lord is coming. And sure enough, he does come and Jesus is born and in him the fullness of the Godhead dwells bodily. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God, the Word became flesh and tabernacled among us. Same word that's used right here. Tabernacled among us. God lived amongst His people in the person of Jesus Christ. Christ descends into heaven on the day of Pentecost. He sends the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit indwells the church. So where is God's presence? His presence is in the church right here on earth. And He's in us individually. Your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. And all this is God dwelling with us. It's not us dwelling with God. Guess where? We're still living on earth. We haven't sprouted wings. We're not created to live in heaven forever. He created us for earth and He comes and condescends and humbles Himself and He lives amongst us. And God dwelling amongst us, tabernacling with us, our bodies are now the temple. Our bodies are now the tabernacle of God. Just as Jesus' body was. But all that is temporary. That's where God dwells, but it's a temporary dwelling. One day, according to verse 3, God is going to come and He's going to dwell on earth permanently. And that's what John sees there in verse 3. See, I heard a voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and He will dwell with them. Meaning, permanently. That's Emmanuel, God with us. And it goes on to say, And they will be His people. And God Himself will be what? With them. And be their God. So here, this speaks of relationships. God's going to be with us. He's going to be our God. We're going to have a relationship with him. So, that's the game. That's the end goal. That's the... This is... Look, chapters 21 and 22, that's the end game. The end game is what? God dwelling with us on earth, not us dwelling with Him in heaven. That's why I always say heaven's just a temporary place. 
If I die today, I go to heaven. If Christ came back tomorrow, set up his kingdom on earth, I'd only be in heaven for one day. Wouldn't I? But how long would the kingdom on earth be? It goes on and on and on. So, why is my focus totally on heaven when it's just a rest stop? Not a bad rest stop. But that's not the goal. The goal is heaven coming down to earth. Not me going to heaven, heaven coming down to earth. That's the goal. God dwelling with us and having this relationship with us. So that's why I've always said, you know, if you take Southwest Airlines and you're going to go to New York City or Hollywood, California, you're going to have to stop, you know, in Oklahoma City. It's a rest stop, but that's not your goal, I hope. It's not New Oklahoma City's not New York City, nor is it Hollywood. So, if I said, where are you going? You'd say, well, I'm going to Hollywood. But I have a rest stop in Oklahoma. We're going to stop in Oklahoma for a short period of time. So, what's your goal? Your goal is a renewed heaven and a new earth, the new Jerusalem coming down, God living with us. That's the goal. Yes, I go to heaven. It's a stopover. It's a rest stop. And we don't like that. You know why we don't like it? Because it doesn't fit in with our theology. But you know, as the pastor says, I couldn't give a hoot and a holler about theology. <laughs> so. It's important that we just see what the text says. Now watch this, what it says in verse 4. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death. No sorrow. No crying. There shall be no more pain. For the former things, all those things that were associated with the old creation, have passed away. Now, just stop for a second. And think how this message sounds to John's audience in the seven churches who know they're going to be persecuted, they're going to be beaten, they're going to be tortured, they're going to be put to death. Their loved ones are going to be put to death. They're going to be crying over their loved ones being put to death, being tortured, whatever else happens. He's telling them there's a time when all that's going to be finished. You're going to be vindicated. Guess who's going to really be punished? It's those people who have punished you. They're in the lake of fire. But you're going to be vindicated. See? So there'll be no more suffering. There'll be no more funerals. No more death. No more funerals. Yesterday, Faye was talking to a, a care group leader. She said, this past year we had five funerals in the president's class. And I probably, you know, did three of those funerals. So there'll be no more funerals. God's with us. Where God is, is it's not, it's not going to be funeral. By the way, you know Jesus never preached the funeral? I told you that once before, about three years ago. Do you remember that? <laughs> he, he stopped the funeral. And he, he raised the person. But he never preached the funeral. And in this new Jerusalem, which is on earth, there'll be no more funerals, no more suffering, no more mourning, no more tears, which is very interesting. Uh, tears are... A, a coping mechanism that the body uses to uh, remove toxins from the body that is produced by stress. Tears help us cope. 
Because when you're under stress, whether somebody's sick, someone dies, you're stressed at work, uh, you know, you can always tell a person who's ready to have a nervous breakdown. They'll just start to cry, won't they, Miss Collins? Start crying for no reason. It's not, they'll be talking, suddenly they'll start crying. You say, that's not normal. The body produces tears because of stress. It's a way of removing those poisonous toxins from your body. And there'll be no more tears in the New Jerusalem because there won't be any more stress. In fact, I'll never have to pray for another sick person. There's not going to be any sick people. That's pretty nice. So out with the old, in with the new. This is the goal that God has for all of us. And now we have this explanation in verse 5. And look what it says. In verse 3, he heard a voice. That was the angel speaking. But now in verse 5, he hears God speaking. And God make, gives an explanation. He who sat on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said to me, Write for these things are faithful and true. In other words, you can count on it. These things are faithful and true. You can count on it. Boy, what a word of encouragement for these people who are going through persecution in John's day and for us as well. Because sometimes you wonder whether it's worth it all to be a Christian and pay the price for faithfulness to Christ. Is it worth it all? And here he says, it's going to be worth it all. And he said to me, it is done. Some translations don't have that there. But my translation says, it is done or it is finished. Three times in the New Testament, that phrase is used, it is finished. Once when he's on the cross and he finishes redemption, he says, it's finished. I close the deal right there. Don't worry about anything else. Once when he judges people, he says, that's finished. <laughs> don't worry. The unrighteous are going to get what they deserve. And right here, we're going to get what we deserve. We're going to be vindicated. It's finished. He says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give the fountain of water of life freely to him who thirst. And uh, this fountain of water that he's talking about, he's mentioned back in chapter 7 of Revelation. It's talking about eternal life that springs up and continues onward, and you will always be in this state of having eternal life. Uh, John writes about it also in his Gospel. When Jesus meets the woman at the well, he said, well, if you knew who was talking to you, you'd ask me for a drink of water. Remember that? And then in John 7, he talks about water that springs up within your body like an artesian well and gives you eternal life. This is just talking about eternal life. This is what you're going to get. This is a promise. You can count on it. That's what he's saying. And then in verse 7, he says, He who overcomes shall inherit all things. Well, who's the overcomer? Well, we know that. That's what he's talked about in chapters 2 and 3. He that overcomes. He that overcomes. He that overcomes. That's the one who doesn't bow the knee to Caesar. That's the one who remains faithful to Christ. That's the one who doesn't deny the Lord. He that overcomes is going to inherit what? All things. You see that in verse 7? Everything you see in these two chapters is going to be ours. That's the offer that he makes. And I will be his God and he shall be my son. And so here we see that uh, talks about this relationship with God again, as a father has with his children. So, this relate and the relationship is going to be here on earth. 
not in heaven. But, look at verse 8. This is the third promise. So he's made sort of three promises. Number one, he makes a promise that uh, in verse 7, you know, that all the things that he writes are faithful and true. You can count on it. And then he says in verse uh, or verse 5, rather, and then in verse 7, he says, uh, he'll, over, and he'll give you the water of life. And then in verse 7, all these things are yours. But there's a third promise, and that's to those who are uh, the compromisers. Those that haven't remained faithful, but the cowardly. That would be those who denied Christ. They feared the government. The unbelieving. They didn't take His word as faithful and true. The abominable. Those who are polluted by Rome and bought into their system of emperor worship and all this kind of stuff. Murderers, those who joined in and persecuted their brothers and turned them in and their sisters and said, these people are not sacrificing to you. The sexually immoral. Uh, don't think of it in terms of the 21st century. Think of it in terms of the Roman meals and the prostitutes and the temple prostitutes and all the things that the people would have been involved in and the sorcery, all that occult that they were involved in, the idolatry, offering the sacrifice to idols and all liars. People who are telling you to do things like Jezebel that we saw back there in chapter 3. Remember her? Jezebel the prophet, the liar. Uh, who telling you to do these things. They are lying to you. That's not going to get you anywhere. All those shall have their part in the lake of fire. He just wants to reiterate it. This is going to be a perfect place. And they will have their part in the lake of fire, which burns, lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. So all these things are given to us for a purpose. Number one, to warn us that if you decide to compromise and deny Christ and not be faithful to the end, for you, lake of fire, church member or not. But also to encourage those who are faithful, that if you are faithful to the end, even if they put you to death, this is your lot in life. You will inherit the kingdom of God which comes upon the earth. So it's a very important passage. And once we see that the end goal is heaven coming to earth and God coming down to us so that we can have a relationship with him, this changes the whole perspective and the rest of this chapter and the next chapter makes sense. So next week we'll pick up at chapter 9 where he has a final vision of the new Jerusalem. Lord, I thank you for uh, your word. I thank you for this perspective that John gives us. Uh, the last word in the Bible must mean that it's important for us to grasp. Lord, help us to put bad theology aside. Help us to, to align our minds with your word. We know that what you've said here is faithful and true. So Lord, help us to be warned, forewarned, we're on the verge of compromising our faith and help us to be encouraged if we've been faithful and plan to continue to be faithful to the end no matter what. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.